Hey everyone, good evening. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is the Treason of Isengard Session 7 as we get uh, deeper and deeper into Lothlorien. Rather, we follow Tolkien as he goes deeper and deeper into Lothlorien as that chapter develops, which is, I find, actually really dramatic, uh, and I'm looking forward to getting to that uh, this evening. Um, so welcome. Thanks for joining me. Uh, quick announcements uh, to begin. One uh, reminder of what I announced last week, um, our, uh, our conference our first regional conference in the Midwest, out in Waterloo, Iowa. So look it up for those of you that are drivable. Anybody in those uh, uh, big Midwestern cities right around uh, surrounding Iowa, you are likely close enough to come join us. So you should totally do that because it's going to be awesome. So uh, go to signumuniversity.org, um, scroll down, look for the uh, uh, for the the, the, the Iowa event. Uh, that is right there on our homepage, and then you can click through, go to the, the uh, Join This Event link, and uh, it'll take you to our registration page. We have uh, a good turnout so far, a bunch of people registered, really looking forward to getting to meet a bunch of new people there. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Hope that you can uh, make it. If you're in a different place and far away, don't worry. Well... We're going to try to get a regional event near you. Can't promise to be exactly near to everyone, uh, but um, but we're going to try uh, to kind of spread out and get around as much as we can because we really love doing that. So that's one thing. The second thing, looking ahead, uh, we are about to begin our, uh, uh, our fall fundraiser again. For those of you who have been around with us for several years, you know that every year we do our annual fundraising campaign uh, to sort of kick uh, kickstart our uh, our annual fund for Signum University. Um, we rely very heavily, of course, on, on uh, the support of our listeners and fans. We uh, try to offer as much as we can for free and then, uh, you know, trust that if you're enjoying what we're doing that you will support us at least some uh, as we go through this year. So um, I'm going to look look for uh, stuff on social media on that. The official launch uh, of the campaign, as always, is on Hobbit Day this coming Friday. So uh, we're looking the day after tomorrow. So looking forward to that. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about this next week uh, during next week's class. We're going to do things. Uh, we're going to do some fun, uh, uh, some fun uh, uh, pledge drive telethon type stuff during class. Not next week, but uh, a couple weeks down the road. Uh, so that should be uh, so that should be a lot of fun. So I, I uh, hope that you will. Uh, join us in participating uh, in our fundraising campaigns. Just wanted to to alert you that that is coming around the corner. And with that, we're going to get going uh, back into Lothlorien. Well, before we go to Lothlorien, we have the very end of that awesome, incredibly rich uh, chapter of progressions uh, as we look at these, as we finish looking at, you know, these and what these are. I mean, I, it's, it's hard to overestimate the significance of this, right? These are Tolkien's first projected outlines, his first ideas about how the Lord of the Rings should end, right? So we looked at the trip to, to Mount Doom. We got to the, we got to the cracks of Doom a uh, week before last. Last week, we were focusing on uh, the War of the War of the Ring, his first ideas of what's happening in Gondor, with, of course, featuring uh, evil Boromir, right, uh, who is probably going to get killed by Aragorn. And now uh, we're going to be looking at uh, the his his projections for the very, very end uh, of the story. So let's start off uh, with those. So resolutions. So let's resolve the Ondor plot, right? Okay. After fall of Mordor, they return to Minas Tirith. Feast. 
Aragorn comes to meet them. Moon rises on Minas Morgul. 26. Aragorn looks out and sees Moon rise over Minas Morgul. He remains behind and becomes lord of Minas Ithil. What about Boromir? Does he repent? Written later in the margin, no, slain by Aragorn. Right? Okay, so does Boromir repent? Nah, nah, Aragorn's going to kill him off. Right? Okay. Um, so, uh, first off, notice what we see here. This is something we've been talking about uh, for, a little, for a little while, right? Um, that is, the fact that the return of the king far from being one of the central plots, isn't even really in the cards. Like, it's not... There is no return of the king. Not only does the king not return, no one's expecting the king to return. It's not even It's not even really there, right? The question is, is anybody going to be coming in uh, to... You know, like, are the Gondorians and the, the heirs of Numenor going to get together again at all, right? Um, not certainly whether, uh, uh, you know, so there's, there's no sense of, of Aragorn coming in as the destined heir with the, the city sort of not daring to hope that the king would actually return. Clearly not. And as we can see at the very end, that gets strongly emphasized, right? Where Aragorn does not end as king. Even though he's accepted and he's even chosen, remember, the Lord of Minas Tirith dies. We're going to kill off the Lord of Minas Tirith relatively early on in the battle, though it doesn't say exactly how, but, you know, lots of opportunities, presumably. So we're going to kill off the Lord of Minas Tirith, and then they have to... This this is where the real rub between Aragorn and Boromir comes in. They decide, they acclaim somebody leader, and they reject Boromir, the son and heir of the Lord of Minas Tirith, and instead choose Aragorn. And that's what pushes Boromir over the edge to evil Boromir to though he was already kind of there from the whole stealing of the ring thing. But um, they don't, he, he doesn't remain as king. So presumably somebody else, if Boromir doesn't repent, I, I, I think that's why what about Boromir happens, right? Because the question is like, so does Boromir become king? And then does he become Lord of Minas Tirith uh, in, in the place of his father after the battle? Answer, no, he's dead. So somebody else is going to be Lord of Minas Tirith. And that's never what Aragorn is thinking of doing, right? Instead, he remains behind. He doesn't return to Minas Tirith. He remains behind and becomes Lord of Minas Ithil. So you see that what I take from this is that the the ultimate storyline of Aragorn here, right? The ultimate storyline of Aragorn is not one of again, of the king returned, right? It's not that kind of fairy tale story of the long-lost heir emerges and, you know, reclaims the kingdom. Instead, it's just one of healing and restoration, right? Minas Ithil has fallen. Minas Ithil has become Minas Morgul. It's been corrupted. So um, taking the, not Minas, not, drawing the focus really away from Minas Tirith and focusing instead uh, on Minas Morgul, Minas Morgul as the fallen, corrupted Andorian city, right? And so that is what's going to be healed and restored under Aragorn. So that's where we're going, right? Um, And that's a really interesting story. Remember also, in retrospect, if we think back to it, uh, that early stuff on Aragorn and his role that we were looking at before did feature Minas Ithil pretty pretty uh, uh, pretty strongly, right? Remember, the Numenorians were always very closely associated uh, with Minas Ithil. Uh, so that, uh, it, that, that, that seems to be, that seems to all kind of come together there. Um, yeah. So, 
Yeah, I, I, both Tony and Josiah were thinking that uh, uh, were both at the same time saying that Aragorn is a lot like uh, like Bard and Bard's role in Dale. Absolutely, and several of you last time were making the comparison when he's acclaimed king, right? Then we talked about that a little bit, right? You know, the 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 the, the sort of similarity between the people of Minas Tirith. Um, asking for Aragorn to be their chieftain, you know, to be their leader during battle um, after the War of Minas Tirith, that kind of like you know, uh, um, you know, down with money bags, up with the bowmen. Um, though that comparison's a little hard on Boromir, isn't it? Like to put Boromir into the money bags uh, category, he'd be he'd be super offended uh, if you said that. But anyway, you know, we're looking at that kind of semi-parallel anyway. Um, and yeah, so the idea of Bard. Just as Bard becomes Lord of Dale and does not rule Esgaroth, so um, we have uh, uh, Aragorn setting up in in Minas Ithil. So I agree, uh, there is definitely something sort of uh, something similar there. Um, yeah, uh, Karita, I agree. A climactic Aragorn and Boromir fight scene uh, would be fun to watch, but uh, I agree with you, Karita, that I'm, I'm glad that, uh, we do end up with the redemption and repentance, uh, of Boromir. I think in the end, that's even more fun, uh, than, uh, than the climactic fight. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, Brian, I was wondering the same thing. Brian is asking, Brian Dimmick says, maybe this is also Aragorn rejecting Minas Tirith, which rejected his forefathers. I wonder. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was, I was kind of wondering the same thing because we saw, remember, Aragorn was still kind of, kind of uh, spicy about that, right? There was still some, uh, there was still some grievance in evidence back at the Council of Elrond. Right? Like, oh, yeah, should I come back so they can kick me out again like they did my ancestors? Right? So, so yeah, one wonders if, um, you know, I mean, Brian, is it is it even, is there some sense in which they're choosing him over Boromir it rubs even Aragorn the wrong way? Right? Like, they're fair-weather friends, um, and he suspects they're going to turn on him again like they turned on Boromir? Who knows? But, uh, um, but it's definitely, it's definitely, uh, very different, certainly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Kate says it's more like taking back what was only Isildur's. You know, he's the heir of Isildur, and so he, he returns and restores Isildur's city, uh, Minas Ithil. Um, yeah, and uh, Kate says so much for uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the monarchist. Uh, yeah, exactly. Last night uh, in Exploring the Lord of the Rings, we were talking about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the anarchist. Um, uh, and uh, so, yeah, no, it's he's uh, not quite the monarchist that a lot of people uh, want to think of him as. Um, but yeah, that does seem to be the impulse, right? I'm going to restore. I'm going to restore that. And although Tony, I agree that this res- that this does diminish Aragorn's mythic role. I don't think. Um, I don't think that there is no. There is still a mythic resonance. Again, I, I rather like the emphasis on healing, right? Um, that what he does is not come into the city of Minas Tirith and rule it, right? Um, not that that's a bad thing, but I, I kind of like the fact that that's not what he does, but rather he goes and says, no, this city which is lost, right? This city which is corrupted, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there and I'm going to cleanse it and I'm going to purify it and I'm going to make it uh, into, you know, like the great... I'm going to restore... Um, the glory of Minas, Ith- of Minas Ithil. I like that. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, Yana, I don't really understand either exactly what was going to be behind the choice of the people of Minas Tirith choosing the stranger over Boromir. Um, Yana's wondering if perhaps, you know, the lord of Minas Tirith, Boromir's father, um, had, uh, you know, betrayed them or something, you know, done something to lose the favor of the people and make them turn away to Aragorn. But Yana, see, given Aragorn's comments back in the Council of Elrond, uh, I would kind of, I mean, again, we, we, know, we, we don't know, right? So it's just pure speculation, really. But um, my guess would be just fickleness, right? You know, that they just, they, they, they're, you know, they're hard to please. Uh, and uh, they kind of get, you know, they're, they're taken by the idea, presumably, of the, the prophecy, right? Um, with the broken sword, right, and the, the the renewal of the broken sword, it's a big deal. And we got the we got the you know the prophecy that brought Boromir up into the north in the first place. So them just kind of seizing onto that and being like, oh yes, like he's our man. And then um, Aragorn at the end suggesting like, well, you know, whatever, for now, right? But who knows what you're going to say tomorrow? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. James, uh, I, I agree. It could even go that far. James Stevens is suggesting that there could be even something sort of quasi messianic in that role of Aragorn's, right? That he's the he's the promised one, right? The the long lost Numenorian, uh, you know, who who returns and is in this kind of messianic role, uh, the prophesied one, right? Uh, who comes and is going to deliver them in battle. It could, it could at least in the eyes of the. Minas Tirithians, right? It 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 could definitely uh, it could definitely look like that or play like that. Um, and Brandon, yes, you're right. That too would be kind of Lake Town-ish. You guys are all over the la- the Lake Town parallels here, right? With the Lake Towns embracing of Thorin, right? So we got all those Lake Town elements all uh, all working together. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Josiah says, does that make Boromir a Herod? Yeah, well, I mean, makes him one of several possible bad guys there, right? Yeah, nothing, uh, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing, he's he's like Herod and Judas rolled up into one. Um, so yeah, that's not, uh, that's not a good, that's not a good look. Okay, the Saruman resolution. Gandalf calls at Isengard. See edition. This edition is found on a separate slip. On way home, they ride horses from Rohan. They call it Isengard. Gandalf knocks. Saruman comes out very affable. Ah, my dear Gandalf, what a mess the world is in. Really, we must consult together. Such men as we are needed. Now what about our spheres of influence? Gandalf looks at him. I am the white wizard now, he said. Look at your many colors. Saruman is clad in a filthy mud color. They seem to have run. Gandalf takes his staff and breaks it over his knee. That is, takes Saruman's staff, presumably, and breaks it over his knee. He gives a thin shriek. Uh, Go, Saruman, he said. Again, presumably Saruman giving a thin shriek. (laughs) Pronouns in these sketchy notes, a little bit uncertain, right? Uh, Go, Saruman, he said, and beg from the charitable for a day's digging. Isengard is given to the dwarves. Or to Radagast. Or somebody. Um, Okay, okay. Um... Several interesting things here, right, that we don't want to take for granted. Thing number one that we've been looking at since the introduction of Saruman and the multiple wizards, right? Notice the white wizard. That's clearly a thing now, 
right? Um, there is one. There can only be one white wizard. That was not at all clear before. Remember, everybody was gray. Originally, everybody was gray, and then we introduced some distinctions. But even at the beginning, when we introduced the brown and the white, which did come pretty quickly after that first draft in which they were all gray, um, that seemed to be more of a sphere of influence thing, right? Like uh, like Saruman is saying, that Saruman is talking about political influence rather than uh, sort of spheres of, of sort of scholarly and wizardly expertise, right? Um, but um, but anyway, so uh, that, you know, it was one thing that we were remarking, that it didn't seem that white, even when Gandalf returned uh, dressed in white, that didn't necessarily seem to be, immediately anyway, or in its conception, all about promotion in rank, right? It seemed to be, more than anything else, tied up with his, that is to say, Gandalf's... Um, or rather, Tolkien's visual image, right, of that radiant Gandalf shining in the light, and so to have him dressed all in in, in pure shining white um, seemed to be like the visual effect that he had in mind. Um, and only subsequent to that does he seem to begin to use that word white um, as applied here to Gandalf to suggest sort of rank or prestige or authority in some sense. Um, so... That, but that now seems so. You know, we, we we were looking at the way in which that was not sort of definite before. Now that is clear, right? It's when I am the white wizard. Now there's no two. There's no two ways. Uh, I think uh, to read that. Um, yeah, Tony's wondering if if uh, Radagast gets promoted to gray. Great question, right? Um, interesting that we might return to Radagast there at the end, right? Um, whereas, of course, we never like breathe a word of Radagast again in the published text uh, at that point. Um, yeah, Tony says in these planning notes he sounds much more in Hobbit mode. Tony, both of them. This is it's one interesting thing about this scene, right? And I know that this is just him dashing off notes. But remember, as we've seen before, when he does this, when he's doing outlining and ends up slipping into dialogue, it's usually because the scene is is starting to, you know, you're, you're kind of getting, he, he's getting these snatches of how the conversation would go. So he segues from outline uh, into dialogue. Um, this is the dialogue that he heard, really? This is the tone of that exchange? Um the idea that Saruman's impulse is not going to be to be haughty and proud and uh, and and but but to be affable, right? To come out and try to what try to brazen it out. Um, what a mess the world is in. So Gandalf, you and I, let's uh, divide the world, right, between you and me. Um, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Karita now wants a Tolkien-themed Project Runway spoof uh, <laughs> based on this passage. Uh, Karita, I see it. I can totally see that happening there. Um, it really does seem to be the uh, this the, the way that he comes back and critiques uh, Saruman's robes. Um, uh, but the joke, right? Your colors seem to have run, right? I mean, really? That's so. It's not just Saruman who comes in with that sort of um, light-hearted tone. It's also the, uh, uh, it's also the, the the Gandalf's response as well. Nobody seems to be taking this encounter too very seriously. Yeah. Um, now, uh, escaped thrall. I see that comment there on Twitch. I'm I'm monitoring the Twitch chat as well. So if you have uh, the most of the comments that you hear me reading 
are in our GoToWebinar session that we're using here for this class, but I am monitoring the Twitch chat as well, so if you have a comment uh, that you want to make, you can make it there as well, and I should be able to, to see it there as well. Um, okay. So, um, and a couple of you, Nancy in particular, um, you know, Nancy is thinking back to Cranky Gandalf that we saw up in Karathras, right, the first time in the Ring Goes South. And uh, Nancy thinks he kind of goes beyond Cranky because he's not Cranky here. He's just, you know, he's just he's just jerk Gandalf, as as Nancy says. And yeah, that whole like go and beg from the charitable for a day's digging. Um, and Nancy, even the kind of implication there, right? Like beg from the charitable, and obviously I don't mean me, right? Like I, I I'm not gonna give you, uh, you know, wage. Uh, wages for hard labor, right? You got to go beg that to some from somebody else. That's um uh that's harsh, <laughs> right? That's harsh and just in a very different mode. Josiah that's a really good way to say it. Josiah says uh, you can't really imagine uh, Gandalf in the published text giving Saruman a sick burn at this stage. Yeah, no, exactly. You really don't. Both of them. Um both Saruman and Gandalf are in different places, right? So but but the very fact that as he's projecting forward. So this is him like thinking, okay, I need to do a reconciliation, not a reconciliation, but I need to resolve the Saruman plot. Right. Um, so how do we do that? And this is his first impulse. His first impulse is to do it in this register, which is really interesting. I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Good. Brian says Saruman is just a man rather than a Maya because yeah, we still have no reason to think that the wizards are, you know, that they, 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 they've been changing, um, but we don't yet have any reason to believe that the wizards are incarnated Maiar, right? There's, there's, there's been nothing to suggest that yet. Um, so, anyway, so Brian is saying that as just a man rather than a Maya, Saruman has no inherent dignity in this version and Gandalf owes him no respect after his treachery. Brian, yeah, I do wonder how much that... Uh, impacts it. I think that's a really good point. Um, not to say that this is a particularly gracious way to treat your defeated foes, whether they're mortal or not, right? But still, I mean, I, I do hear what you're saying here. Um, think about, um, Brian, think about Frodo's words about Saruman at Bag End, right? He was great once, and, you know, and, and, and we shouldn't dare to raise our hand against him. And, uh, that element is not here. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, Yana, it does still seem to be an occupation. Wizarding. Right. Um, as far as we can see. Yeah. Good. Um, James, this is the only other dialogue we've gotten from Saruman has been his uh, recruitment speech of Gandalf. That's, I think that's the only other time we've heard Saruman speak. Um, and so keep in mind also... We don't have the voice of Saruman. We don't have the voice of Saruman yet. There's been no uh, significant significance um, uh, ascribed to his words or you know his persuasiveness or anything like that. So um, that's not yet on the radar screen. It seems. Um, and Josiah, great question. Um, why the dwarves? I don't. I don't get that either. Um, Josiah wonders. Uh, what they would want with Isengard. Um, well, remember it is, and sort of, I mean, there's, it's a natural, 
I mean, Orthanc is not natural, but the the Valley of Isengard is a natural formation, and the you know there's a lot of Isengard in tunnels underneath. It's it's not like it's a wholly undwarfish place necessarily, I think, but um, it does seem it does seem a little bit odd. Right now, it's there's no indication, there's no hint that Isengard ever belonged to Gondor or anything like that. Um, uh, presumably, Saruman built it or something. Right, we don't. We haven't, I don't think we've. We haven't had any history of Isengard that suggests it's anything other than just Saruman's tower, right? Um, so there isn't an original owner to return it to, but the dwarves still seems to me, and just especially since there's no hint of dwarvish presence really around there. I mean, Jordan, it's kind of close to Moria, but. I mean, closer than some other things, but it's not very close to Moria. I mean, it's pretty far south of Moria. So, I don't know. I mean, maybe. But, anyway. Uh, or to Radagast. So, you know, the two impulses there seem to be, one, let's completely repurpose Isengard, right? But the thing, the thing they both have in common is let's give it to an ally, right? Um, but... Um, the first one is let's totally repurpose it. The second one is let's replace a bad wizard with a good wizard. So let's set Radagast up in Isengard. Redoubling uh, my wonders of whether or not he's going to get promoted uh, to be the Grey Tony. Right? But anyway. Okay, let's keep going. The end of the journey. They ride home to Rivendell. 27. Song of the Banished Shadow. Rivendell. Meeting with Bilbo. 28. What happens to the Shire? Last scene. Sailing away of elves. Added faintly, Bilbo with them. And the... Something. 29. Sam and Frodo go into a green land by the sea? Okay. Um... First of all... Can I get the Song of the Banished Shadow? <laughs> I want to hear the Song of the Banished Shadow. But the fact that he has this impulse of being like, okay, we need a big song, right? We need a musical number in Rivendell. That needs to happen, right? I agree. That totally needs to happen. Um, we're going to meet up with Bilbo again. What happens to Shire? Um, now, this I find interesting, because remember way back... Okay, wasn't all that far back in the uh, in the uh, the song or rather in, in the in the book, a little further back in our discussions. But um, in the Council of Elrond, um, when Elrond said that he had a purpose for Merry and Pippin, they were going to get set, sent back to the Shire. And we were wondering, like, is he, um, is he focusing on, um, is he, that is, is, is Tolkien already thinking about the, the scouring, right? You know, that this is what he's going to send Merry and Pippin home for, that he has this sort of Shire plot line that he's going to be pursuing either concurrently or something that he's going to return to. Um, and uh, this suggests, no, that wasn't the case at all. He was going to send Merry and Pippin, like he had the idea to do something in the Shire, but this seems to me to suggest a clear answer to the question, was he already thinking of the scouring of the Shire? Answer, no, because he's still asking it as an open question. What happens to Shire? 
right? Something happens to it, but he doesn't know clearly what it's going to be. Um, so that suggests to me that he didn't have any concrete idea of what Merry and Pippin were going to be sent home to do. And then we have the sailing away at the end. No, Tara, we're not quite to the biscuit factory yet. The biscuit factory will come in, will come in later on. Um, soon, but not quite yet. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Brandon, he does seem to think that something should happen to the Shire. So that already is interesting, right? That um, when they return to the Shire, they're not just going to find it unchanged. It's not going to be like... And, and that's very significant, right? Because Bilbo did, right? Bilbo came back and found everything the same in the Shire, but he wasn't the same, right? That was the story there of the end of, of, the, end of the Hobbit. The end of the Lord of the Rings is going to be different because they're going to come back and the Shire itself will have changed in some way. Um, but we don't quite know um, uh, when or what that's going to be. Um, and then the sailing away at the end. Sam and Frodo... So Bilbo goes, but Frodo doesn't. Um, Frodo and Sam, he does not immediately envision parting Frodo and Sam. Right, Frodo and Sam going into a green land by the sea. I'm not sure what that means. Um, it does suggest, Brian, that Frodo's visions of the sea in his dreams don't yet refer to the sailing into the West. When we look at that, you know, we were looking at Frodo's dream before, you know, his dream of the sea and the tower overlooking the sea. Um, that sounds like, knowing what happens at the end, that sounds like a foreshadowing of Frodo's own departure across the sea. But again, it wasn't, right? Because Tolkien clearly does not have the idea yet. That for, now, it's conceivable that he thought of it and is now rejecting it, but we have no other real... Re- reason to interpret that passage that way anymore, right? So it seems that there's... The sea is still significant. They're going to go and be by the sea, but they're not going to cross it. Um, So, um, yes, Yana, I agree. This It's not going to be a simple there and back again story for both reasons, right? Not only is the Shire itself not going to be the same when they come back, but they're going to be different, and in fact, they're going to have to leave the Shire. So the, the idea that Frodo will not be able to settle down and stay in the Shire, that's foreseen from the beginning, right? The details of how the sailing away will work and uh, poor Sam being torn in two, uh, Rosie Cotton seems to be not on not on the radar here either, right? Um, yeah, so this, that's... Um, and they're still together, Frodo and Sam still together, having that same experience. Kate, yes, it is kind of like um, Sam and Frodo returning back as like like two war veterans returning home and both finding that they can't really return home again, right? And then eventually the two of them both leave. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, it does seem, Jennifer, that... Uh, we do seem to have pitched the idea of pitching Sam into the cracks of doom, right? Though that, that seemed to go right away, even, even before he had finished with that, at, with that outline. Um, it was only that first impulse of having Sam himself fall into the cracks of doom. Um, after that, he was fighting off Black Rider single-handedly and then chucking Gollum in, um, which is cool. 
Nancy, yes. I think this is, and Nancy says, is this a little bit of Baron and Luthien maybe? No, it's a lot of Baron and Luthien. I think that's exactly what we're seeing. After the traumatic adventure is over, Sam and Frodo retire to a green land um, where they are on their own, right? Where they are isolated. Um, you know, like, so the green land by the sea sounds a little bit like the, the you know, the, the land of the dead that live, right? Where uh, where Baron and Luthien end up and separate themselves from the rest of society. Um, it does sound to me very much like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Uh, okay. Um, good, let's keep going. Now we move into Lothlorien. The thing that I want to be tracing. Oh, hey, Noah, good to see you. I'm I'm trying to watch the the because we're doing Facebook Live too. And I'm trying to follow the Facebook uh, comments too. So I got comments in three, four actually different places. Uh, so if I miss people's comments, be understanding, <laughs> but I should be able to follow them. So welcome, Noah. Okay, so let's start the Lothlorien chapter. The thing. Um, that I am so fascinated by with the Lothlorien stuff is to see how the Lothlorien chapter develops. Um, it's a great example. Remember, notice 29, right? He's projecting 29 chapters to end the Lord of the Rings. And we know he's going to actually end up having, you know, almost twice that, right? So um, that's, um, uh, that is not going to happen, right? The 29 chapters. Um, and so it's really fun to see how 29 comes into, what is it, actually, 50, 51, something? I forget the actual number of, of chapters in the published Lord of the Rings. Somebody count for me. Um, but, but I think it's, um, um, it's really neat to see how these things grow. So when he said, you remember those adorable passages we were looking at last week when uh, he says one chapter and then he lists all these things that we know is going to take him like four or five chapters. Um, how does that happen, right? How does this thing that he envisions being one chapter, how does it grow? Um, and the Lothlorien chapter is a wonderful case study in that. Right. Um, so let's go. We, let's go back to the sketches. So he picks this up right after he's done the Bridge of Casa Doom, and he's just been looking forward. So now he's going to sixty-two. Okay, sixty-two. So it is actually a little bit less than half uh, of the of the total chapters that he's going to do. Thank you, James and Bruce, for counting for me. Um, but um, okay, so 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 watch this. Um, he starts. This is the first concept of Lothlorien. Right, the Lothlorien show. After they leave, they felt the Balrog, Gandalf has fallen, they go into Lothlorien. What's going to happen? They pass into Dimril Dale. It is a golden afternoon, but dark in the dale. Mirror, mirror, smooth sward, deep blue like night sky. I love it when these visual images kind of float in uh, to, through Tolkien's imagination as he's doing these. These are the moments where you can really see sort of uh, Tolkien the painter the landscape painter coming through. Uh, I think a lot of times when he pictures things, you can see in his prose uh, the fact that he's picturing it like a painting and then describing it. I think it's why he spends so much time in his landscape descriptions. But anyway. um, uh, Okay, mirror, mirror, smooth sward, deep blue like night sky, notes scribbled in later, 
Orcs won't come out by day, Frodo's wounds dressed by Trotter, so they discover the Mithril Mail. No time to stay, Gimli's regret, see the Black Springs of Morthond, which the river is still named, it's not the Celebrant yet, follow it. Make for Lothlorien, Legolas's description. The wood is in winter, but still bears leaves that have turned golden. They do not fall till spring, when the green comes, and great yellow flowers. It was a garden of the wood elves long ago, before the dwarves disturbed the evils beneath the mountains, he said. Gimli does not like that. They lived in houses in trees before the darkening world drove them underground. In dusk, Frodo again hears feet, but cannot see anything following. They march on into the dusk. They take refuge in the trees and see orcs march by beneath. Frodo, long after, sees a sloping, a sloping-backed figure moving swiftly. It sniffs under the tree, stares up, and then disappears. Okay. What is Lothlorien? Right? What is the original concept of Lothlorien? First of all, notice how from the very, very beginning, Lothlorien is connected with the Malorn trees. Right? We, don't, we haven't had that word yet here, Malorn, that is. Um, but the concept of the trees, this, the gorgeousness of Lothlorien is its essence. He, so again, one of, the, one of the very first elements to emerge in his mind is this whole description of how um, the trees bear their golden leaves all winter long, and then in the spring they fall and the flowers come, right? That image of what Lothlorien looks like and how, how radiant, gorgeous. I'm using the word gorgeous not sort of vaguely, but very specifically. Um, it, is, uh, it, is, it, is, it is a glorious-looking place. And that's one of the essential things of it. It was a garden of the wood elves. Connected to Legolas, therefore, right? Like the wood elves of, of, of Mirkwood. They seem to be more closely connected, perhaps, in Tolkien's mind here. And yes, Tom, no high elves, right? So there's no indication that there's any connection uh, to the Noldor, to Valinor, or anything, right? This is... Um, Lothlorien is clearly... It looks different, Right, because of the incredibly beautiful trees, but it's the elvishness of Lothlorien is clearly in the same category uh, as as Mirkwood. Right, so the elves we met in the Hobbits, in the Hobbit, the elves we meet uh, in Lothlorien, basically the same. Right, um, and uh, yeah, Josiah, it's not a it's not a realm, it's not a kingdom, it's a garden. Right, it's like a I don't know what a summer home, right, winter home. Anyway, it's a garden that you come and visit. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, James. Different from the elves that the stones remember in Holland. Yes, um, because those are of a different kind. Presumably, the spirits of Lothlorien, um, uh, Legolas could speak to perfectly comfortably, presumably, right? Um, yeah. Uh, James asked, they left it because of a Balrog. Uh, no? Remember, one thing that we see, and Christopher points this out, one thing that we see clear evidence of, the idea that the Balrog was Durin's bane and um, that the dwarves awakened it is an idea which, if it's there, is not yet certain, is not yet a definite thing at all. Um, Maybe it's on the perimeter in Tolkien's mind there, um, but he's clearly not settled on it, and we see very plain evidence of it. Uh, in the second Lothlorien chapter. Um, 
Uh, yeah, Jennifer says the uh, the Balrog is just one of many evils, and I think that's why Gimli's offended, right? Um, disturbed the evils beneath the mountains. Um, so there were a whole bunch of things that the dwarves... Um, it kind of seems like a consequence of greed and industrialization kind of thing, right? Those those dwarves, right, they, they stirred up evils uh, through their actions and... You know that uh, uh, that led to trouble. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, I, Josiah. I agree. The driving of them underground when the uh, when the world darkened does make them sound like exactly the same people, not just similar to, but exactly the same people as th- as. Thranduil's people as the elves of Mirkwood. I totally agree. Um, and Tony, I also am thinking they probably mean the orcs and goblins at least, uh, as much, if not more, if not them instead of uh, the Balrog. Um, okay, so so what is the plot function of Lothalorian? It is a place for them to escape from their pursuit from Moria, right? So they, they, they've, they've gotten out of Moria... The Balrog and Gandalf have fallen, but the orcs are still after them. How can they escape from the pursuit of the orcs? Lothlorien, right? The elves of Lothlorien will help them to escape from the orcs that are pursuing them. The orcs march by beneath, so by taking refuge in the trees of Lothlorien, they escape the orcs. The other important plot point, they see Gollum, right? So we get the, the, the first sighting of Gollum by Frodo. We had the footfalls of him back in Moria, right? So the idea that Gollum is pursuing them is already present, um, but now we're gonna we're gonna working closer because remember the significance of that, right? When f- soon, very soon, we're gonna have bef- no river journey. We're gonna have the breaking of the fellowship, and Frodo's gonna run off by himself, and Gollum's gonna pursue him. So setting up Gollum's inexorable pursuit um, of Frodo has an even more important place in the story here than it eventually will be. So, and that's it. That's the story. Um, uh, here's the uh, synopsis, uh, and this, this comes in later on. This is, a, this is a later expansion as he's writing the chapter. Here is the central Lothlorien event. Again, what, like, what happens in Lothlorien? Or rather, okay, this is the answer to the question. What happens in Lothlorien, in The Lord of the Rings, right? according to the first draft that he writes? This is it. This is Lothlorien. Legolas sings song of Ling, of Linglorel. Legolas describes the houses of the Galadrim. Gimli says trees would be safer. Aragorn decides to climb for night. They find a group of great trees near to the falls, to right. Legolas is about to climb one when, with many low bows when a voice in elven speech comes from above. He fears arrows. But after a converse in elven speech reports that all is well. Warnings of things afoot have reached folk of Lorien from the Gladden fields when Elrond's messengers came east. They have set guards. Saw many orcs passing west of Lorien towards Moria. Put this in later, when elves talk to company. They did not challenge or shoot because they heard Legolas's voice and after the, so- and after the sound of his song. They have a great platform in two trees by the falls. Legolas, Sam, and Frodo go to platform with three elves, others on another platform, and Aragorn and Boromir in crotch of large tree. Orcs come to, Ling- to Linglorel in night. 
the elves. I'm glad that Linglorel wasn't the name that was chosen because I find that a very difficult word to pronounce. The elves do not shoot because they are in too great number. That is, the orcs, not the elves, in too great number. But one slips away to warn folk in wood and prepare an ambush. After all is quiet again, Frodo sees Gollum creep into wood. He looks up and begins to climb, but just as the elves fit arrows to bow, Frodo stays them. Gollum has a sense of danger and fades away. Next day, the elves lead them to Angle. And so the Angle, the area of Lothlorien down at the junction of the Morthon, soon to be the Celebrant, and the Great River. Right? And what's going to happen there? When they get to the Angle, what's going to happen there is the breaking of the Fellowship. Right? The Angle, um, down by the two rivers, the junction of the two rivers, that is the Parth Gallon of the original story. The whole function of it is to be a place of peace where they can be alone and talk together and have the breaking of the fellowship. Okay? So, that's it. This is it. This is the Lothlorien story. So this is stage one of the Lothlorien story. Um, let's escape from the orcs. Let's notice that Gollum is pursuing us. And that's it. So notice this is fleshed out from the previous one. We have a little more elf lore. We've added uh, Linglarel, right? And the song uh, that Legolas sings, we have... Uh, he, he's clearly getting the... Hearing the narrative more clearly, right? We have the, you know, who goes up into which flat and uh, and all that stuff. So we have... Uh, we have the, this story fleshing itself out into a very recognizable form, not exactly the same as the published text, but not too far from it either. What's interesting is what isn't there. Namely, anything. There is no, there is no Karas Galatham. There's no city of the Galadrim at all. Um, this is the only function that they have. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, very good. Um, and, and Bruce, absolutely. No Galadriel. No anybody else. Um, Jennifer asks, who are these folk uh, of Lorien? Are they Wood Elves from Thranduil's kingdom who remain behind? Uh, I don't know. Are they estranged? Are they some of Thranduil's people who just kind of rotate down when they feel like, a, when they feel like a, a holiday down in the garden? you know, of the elves? I don't really, I'm not sure, I'm not clear on that. They're called the Galadrim as if they're different, right? But who knows, maybe that just means that's the name, I mean, remember Legolas's people are called the Wood Elves. Presumably that's not their own name for themselves. Uh, so presumably their name in Elvish would be something different, and gosh, uh, Galadriel, or, or rather uh, 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 Galadrim is not a bad approximation of Wood Elf, actually, right? So, uh, so yeah, I, I don't think... I think we have lots of evidence to think of them not as a people apart at all, not, not any kind um, of a people apart. So what exactly is their relationship? When they hear Legolas's voice, again, we see, we, we see that... Uh, where was that? Um, the elves do not shoot because they're in too great... No, no, that's at the orcs, not at them. Um, warnings of things afoot. Where's the bit about his song? I'm, I'm losing. Oh yeah, they did not challenge or shoot because they heard Legolas's voice and after the sound of his song. Um, it makes you wonder: Do they recognize him? Do they know him? I mean, if they are of the same people, presumably they'd know Legolas, right? Son of their king, right? You'd think. Um, but. Um, who knows? Who knows? 
Okay. The next stage, right? The next thing to be added to the Lothlorien story. Okay, wait a second. When he starts writing it, right? So, so, so he's gonna he he's got this whole thing clear in his mind, and he's he's not, and as we can tell, he's not gonna lose any of this, right? This is all part of the story. So he writes this story, and when he writes it, it sounds very familiar to what we know. But the first thing that happens is. After, the morning after, right? After the orcs come and pass by, and then Gollum comes and kind of freaks them out. The the outline called for, then they just get led down to the angle so they can go on with the breaking of the Fellowship already, right? So the very first thing that happens is Tolkien finds, as he, um, Haldir, or Hathaldir, uh, is leading them down, he needs to lead them somewhere, right? He's not content with... Having Lothlorien, so the first thing he wants is for Lothlorien, for this elvish realm, not to be only these flats on the on the border, right? Not just the border guards that they run into. Um, so he invents the heart of Elvendom on Earth, right? Karen Emroth, this hill, um, and so we go to visit, and we have all that very significant stuff. Um, Frodo's experience on Karen Emroth, right? Um, so here's our new projection here as he's now inventing this new element of the story. Um, they need to they need to do some sightseeing in Lothlorien. There needs to be a sight to see in Lothlorien. Something some magical center of the kingdom. News. Hathaldir says he has spoken much of elves. What of men? The message spoke of nine. Gandalf. Consternation at news. So this is uh, not him receiving news, uh, uh, Haldir or Hathaldir. Uh, this is them exchanging news. So this is the conversation as they walk. Lord of Galadrim and Lady and something went to White Council. The remaining notes are as follows. Okay, so that's our first reference. The first hint that there is a Lord and a Lady of the Galadrim. We don't get any names. It's totally not clear what that even means, right? But this is the first indication that the Galadrim are clearly an independent political unit, right? They have rulers, a lord and a lady. We don't know anything about them yet, but there it is. Okay, they climb Karen Emroth. Frodo says, Reed sees, uh, uh, um, Christopher Tolkien suggests, uh, sees Anduin far away, a glimpse of Dol Dugal. Yes, uh, Bruce, that is Dol Guldur, uh, the er- earlier name of it. Uh, far away, a glimpse of Dol Dugal. Hathaldir says it is reoccupied and a cloud lowers there. They journey to, to Nelanas. Lord and lady clad in white with white hair, piercing eyes like a lance in starlight. Lord says he knows their quest but won't speak of it. They speak of Gandalf, Song of Elves, of the harbor to Legolas and aid to Gimli. Bjornings. Leave Lothlorien. Parting of ways at Stonehills. Okay. So, Karen Emroth is the first step. Now we're going to... And notice the significance that we get with the glimpse of Dol Dugal, right? The glimpse of Dol Guldur, as it will later on be called, right? Um, this becomes that first sort of central glimpse. Um, the juxtaposition, the visual juxtaposition of the two, I'm going to look out and I'm going to see 
the evil place, right, with a lowering cloud, and then I'm going to go the other way, and I'm going to see Nelanus, or at least in this case, they they journey to it. Anyway. Okay, so we have a lord and a lady, and they have white, they have interesting hair, right? All we know. They're clad in white, and they've got white hair. Um, their eyes, piercing eyes like a lance in starlight. Um, and there's no reason to think that that's the lady's eyes that we're talking about. We're speaking collectively of the two of them equally. Um, and it's the Lord who speaks. Um, Jennifer asks if the white hair means they're very old, uh, like cured in the shipwright. Maybe. Um, I, I think probably that's what that suggests. The fact that he is really insisting that their hair be white does suggest great antiquity. Um, which is interesting, again. Uh, or, I wonder, Jennifer, do you think there's any chance that the whiteness of their hair is purely aesthetic? I'm not suggesting that they dye it, uh, you know, that the Lord and Lady of the Galadrium bleach their hair, but I mean on Tolkien's part. Um, the trunks of the trees are white, right? So, um, They'd look charming, right, in their white robes with white hair. I wonder if it's, again, this is Tolkien, the painter, envisioning the shot, right? And uh, and thinking, again, like picturing them all radiantly white as they come up, surrounded by the white trunks of the trees and, um, you know, the gold letters up above. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly, James. Contrast to the yellow, I think that that would be lovely, right? I think that would work really well. Um, And their eyes, right? The eyes are the thing that's really emphasized there. And then we have, we'll talk about the plot points that he suggests later on. Now notice already, with this idea that we're going to have now a central city, right? We're going to have Karen Amroth and we're going to go to Nelanas, right? Which is the name of the city. Um, And we're going to meet the Lord and Lady, they're they're already spending a little bit more time in Loth- at least the narrative is spending more time in Lothlorien than he had originally expected with just the Haldir incident up in the north, which was the whole Lothlorien story. So now we've added we add Karen Emroth, and then after that, very quickly, we add the Lord and Lady and their city. Um and then they're gonna leave. Now notice parting of ways at Stonehills. So the the breaking of the fellowship isn't gonna happen inside of Lothlorien anymore, apparently. Right, which makes sense because it's it before it was almost empty, right? They barely interacted with the elves of Lothlorien just at the border when they were escaping the elves and getting freaked out by Gollum, and then they left and they were pretty much on the you know they were they were pretty much on their own, and then they um, broke up the fellowship, right? Um, they're going to leave Lothlorien entirely now before they break the fellowship. Um, oh yes, James and the White Council. They went to the White Council. We don't know if they were like full voting members or not. Uh, you know, were they in the gallery? We don't really know, but they, they attended. They attended the White Council. Um, so that's interesting. Um, then we have his projected notes at the very that Christopher gave at the very end of that uh, passage. Could not Balrog be Saruman? 
What? <laughs> Could not Balrog be Saruman? Um, I get, get Oh, man. Like, does anybody else want a Scooby-Doo moment there, right? Like, the Balrog leaps over and the flames come up around him, right? And he's wreathed in fire and he jumps out onto the bridge and he's like, Actually... And he rips off his mask, and it's Saruman, right? Like, it's, um, I love it. I, I think that that would be, <laughs> that would be awesome, right? And I, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, um, uh, <laughs> Brian says, hey, it's another stage in Saruman's sartorial evolution, right? Um, <sighs> Um, you know what I couldn't help uh, but think of with that question could not Balrog be Saruman I was it made me think a little bit more kindly of one of the things that I have always laughed in greatest mockery at in the Peter in the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films I mean I don't th- I think the line that made me crack up uh, and, like, not in an appropriate way. Like, the one time I succumbed to a laughter of derision whilst watching the movies for the first time. I did. I mean, I tried to maintain my objectivity. But that moment on Karathras, when they say, like, I hear fell voices on the wind, and Gandalf says, It's Saruman! I just busted out laughing. That was so funny. Um, that they, like, literalized that and made Gandalf recognize it, and then we get this long-distance fight between Gandalf and Saruman, shouting over hundreds and hundreds of miles. Um, I thought that was absolutely hilarious. And I still find it funny every single time I hear uh, uh, Ian McKellen's Gandalf say, It's Saruman! Um, but look! Tolkien almost! Like, this, that's like Tolkien's It's Saruman moment, right? The Balrog comes, you know... Lego says, hi, I, a Balrog. And then Gandalf says, it's Saruman. <laughs> right? I mean, come on. So I, I now I'm a little, I got to cut Peter Jackson some slack now. Um, but anyway, um, so this is awesome. But anyway, but the point is, the point is, Tolkien has this impulse of A, giving Saruman and Gandalf a climactic confrontation, right? I don't, I don't, I was joking about the Scooby Doo mask, of course, um, but that when he says, could not Balrog be Saruman, the next sentence, make battle on bridge B between Gandalf and Saruman, um, suggests pretty clearly that, um, that he's thinking not of having Saruman disguised as Balrog, but, uh, but ditching the Balrog and say, hey, what if instead of a Balrog, it's Saruman that he fights? Let's let's push forward the confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman to Khazad-dum. Like, I, you know, he wants Gandalf to square off, square off against Saruman. He's already had him squaring off against, you know, like, like basically, why give Gandalf two boss fights when you can combine the boss fights uh, into one? So that's, uh, that makes sense. Um, uh, yeah, and Brian, I agree with you. It does show 
uh, how, um, you know, Brian says having Saruman and Gandalf have their big confrontation here is more evidence that Tolkien thought he was getting fairly close to the end of his story at this point. It's true. Though, of course, Brian, we have to remember that in the outlines he's already written, he had Saruman already doing stuff, right? Saruman and Saruman's armies were part of the siege of Minas Tirith. He was half of the siege of Minas Tirith, and also he was going to be connected to Boromir. It was to Saruman that Boromir was going to defect, right? And uh, seek his advice on how to, um, you know, get back at that, um, um, at that uh, interloper that has come in. Um, <laughs> Tom Hillman suggests perhaps it's a Balrog disguised as Saruman. Now that would be a twist, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, ah, Kate, that's good. Kate says, you know, it does make more sense of giving Isengard to the dwarves if it was Saruman, you know, who's in allegiance with the orcs in Moria, right? Uh, it would be like reparations, right, Kate? Like, in, in order to apologize for the damage that Saruman did to your ancestral home, um, we'll throw in Isengard. That makes all kinds of sense. Um, yeah. Um... Good. And then, uh, and then Gandalf clad in white, James. Yeah, the, the J- Gandalf something or other clad in white. Um, there he seems to be retaining the idea, which, is, which he's already said. I don't think this necessarily means he's yet reconsidering Gandalf's fall. But remember, he had never had him dying. Death and resurrection is not yet, is not yet part of Gandalf's story. Um, uh so, uh, yeah. Oh, Druid's Fire. The Balrog was originally described as being the same size as a man. He was, he was always a sort of demonic figure, but he, he, was, he was no taller than a man uh, in the first description. So that was, the, that was the main thing, that he was extremely um, sort of normally human-sized. Yes, as uh, uh, Tara and a couple others are saying before, uh, does this mean, and Matthew was saying the same thing just now, does this mean that Saruman would have wings? Yeah, that would become the big debate, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that is interesting, Tony. Tony says, you know, he'd think that Tolkien might start to worry that Saruman was starting to overshadow Sauron uh, as the main bad guy. Well, yeah, Tony. I mean, if you think about that, it does really show Saruman. Think even the fact that Sauron and Saruman are both of them besieging Minas Tirith together puts them more on a par. Even though Saruman is still loyal to Sauron and is not setting up on his own in rivalry to Sauron, as we see. And we saw that earlier on in his recruitment speech, right, that he was still uh, faithful uh, to Sauron. For now. I mean, he's planning a coup later on, right? That he and Gandalf could, you know, get the reins in their own hands, right? As time goes on, that was still always part of his thing. But he's still serving Sauron faithfully uh, at that point. Um, But he does seem, in some sense, to have a kind of a higher profile. Not higher than Sauron. um, But there's this sense in the published text that Saruman, in seeking to rival Sauron, he's always fooling himself, right? From the beginning, He's been delusional about this. And there is no, in no sense is Saruman a peer of Sauron. Um, so, um, uh, 
Yeah. Oh, so Bruce is asking, when did the name Goadriel first appear? Uh, sadly, Christopher Tolkien suggested that there's a passage that's like missing, like a page that gets lost. And he thinks that that's where the name of Goadriel first appeared. Um, that this passage in here, uh, Lady uh, blah, something or other, like that, he thinks that somewhere in there, um, there is uh, the reference to Goadriel's name. Um, so Christopher finds it kind of uh, sad that Galadriel uh, first gets referred to in a passage that is probably lost. Um, but, uh, but here it's much more clear. So now let's move on to, uh, let's move on to, uh, the Galadriel contemplations. Now we're going to flesh out this whole Lord and Lady issue, right? Lord, if Galadriel is alone and his wife of Elrond. So Lord, question mark, seems to be like, do they even have a Lord? Maybe they don't have a Lord. Maybe Galadriel alone rules them. And she's Elrond's wife, right? So Elrond is an Imladris, and she, I don't know if they, you know, they're estranged, you know, did they, um, uh, are, you know, does this mean that, well, on the one hand, Goadriel and Elrond are married, on the other hand, they're like, you know, married filing separately here, you know, on their taxes, I don't know, but anyway, we're toying with this idea. A third note, again struck through, is written on the back of the inserted page that carries the, the preliminary draft of Frodo's perceptions of Lothlorien. Elf rings. Something illegible. The power of the elf rings must fade if one ring is destroyed. So we see here the first evidence that Tolkien is rethinking the role of the elvish ring. So it is interesting. Again, it's, it's hard to know what to make of it yet, but it's clear that these two things, right? Galadriel's beginning to emerge. This, this is the first, um, this is the first suggestion that Galadriel is the really prominent one. In the previous outline with the Lord and Lady, the Lord was the primary there. Um, so this is the first hint that, hey, what if we make Galadriel into a big thing, right? And, um, uh, she's still going to be Elrond's wife. That's part of making her a big thing. And then he immediately goes from there to the elf rings. So the association of the elf rings with Goadriel also seems to be part of the uh, part of the part 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 of the story there. Um, okay. But okay, so we're gonna go. But now we're going through the narrative. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna flesh out that narrative of Goadriel and Celeborn and the visit uh, to Nelanas, as it was then called. Um, we so he just uh, this is Christopher Tolkien talking about the a passage where we had the first appearance of Celeborn and Goadriel. Just visible in the underlying penciled text are other names, Tar, and Finduilas struck out, and then Aran and Rien. Rien is perhaps to be equated with Rian, the name of Tuor's mother. CF the etymologies, stem R-I-G. Rian, name of a woman, equals crown gift. Rianna. Okay. Um, this is really, really interesting to me. Um, that Tolkien is considering changing the names. Celeborn and Goadriel emerge, though Celeborn spelled with a K. Um, those emerge uh, um, pretty early. Right, um, but he's contemplating. Um, he's contemplating um, the um, the idea of changing their names. He's trying, as as he so often does. You know, he's trying out some other names. Um, <laughs> Karina's not a big fan of tar, right? Um, 
uh, <laughs> who wouldn't fall in love with a man named Tar. Uh, I hear you. I hear you. Um, Tar is a little funny, but what I am even more interested in um, is Finduilas, right? Um, now, Finduilas. Can somebody double check this to make sure? I'm pretty sure Finduilas is already named Finduilas, right? That character in the. She's already Finduilas, at least in the alliterative rhyme of the. the alliterative verse of the Children of Hurin, right? The alliterative Narn back in the Lays of Beleriand. I'm almost sure that Finduilas. Isn't she? Yeah, yeah. She's already named that. Pretty sure. Yeah. Um. Uh, so that's really significant that he's thinking about, that he toys with the idea of naming her Finduilas. Um, because I don't think he would reuse the name for a different person. Um, that is, the fact that he's toying with calling her Finduilas suggests to me that he's thinking of stealing that name. Uh, from the Turin Turambar story, so that Turin's not if only Turin's if only elvish girlfriend, right, is gonna be renamed presumably next time he comes around to the Silmarillion material, um, and uh, so yeah, I I I think so. No, I don't think Greta that she got away. <laughs> Uh, eventually, and finds a fit replacement for Turin uh, when she names when she when she when she uh, falls in love with a dude named Tar. Um, but um, but anyway, I said no. I, I think it's it's that he's he's gonna he's gonna steal that name. Uh, Kate, I agree. There's lots of evidence that he really likes the name Finduilas, right? But again, that in itself, the fact that Finduilas seems to be on his short list of favorite Elvish woman names, um, and he's thinking of stealing it. From the from the, the the from the Narn from the Children of Hurin, right? Um, is itself very interesting. To us, it might seem obvious, right? I mean, this is Galadriel. This is an important character, right? He doesn't know this is an important character yet. The one concept, right? The one connection that he has given to suggest that maybe she's going to be important is the idea of maybe she's going to be Elrond's wife. Right, but at this point, as we'll see in the narrative as it unfolds, there is little reason to think that there's very much that important about her, except for the fact that he's thinking of stealing the name Finduilas. Um, and uh, and yes, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, jo- both Brandon and Josiah uh, were thinking Tar and Aron. They just mean king. Um, so he's pulling he's pulling a Rohiric king thing. Yes, exactly. Where he's just he's just giving the Lord the Elvish name for Lord, essentially. Um, so that's why, that's why he's called, he's called Tar. Um, yeah, yeah. Now, Tony, you're right. He does do it again for Finduila, for uh, Denethor's wife. Her name, Faramir's mom, is Finduilas. But she's a human, right? It's okay for the humans to name their daughters after dead Elvish women, right? But it's not okay for elves to be named. Uh, after uh, dead elves, because they come back and then it's awkward. Like, right? I mean, it's worse than, like, you know, them wearing the same dress to the party. So, um, anyway, okay. 
Um, and yeah, Josiah Tolkien has already stolen Legolas Greenleaf as well. So we do see him mining, not recycling exactly, but kind of mining. Uh, he's not recycling characters, but he is reusing names, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah, and I'm sorry, again, guys, on the on the Twitch chat, um, there's a link. If you go to Mythgard.org in the Mythgard Academy section, the page for the Treason of Isengard, there's a link there for the GoToWebinar uh, session. It's a recurring session. That's where everyone else is. But again, I can see your chats there on the, on, on the Twitch channel. So if you just want to make comments there, you totally can. Um, like Druid's Fire observation, which, yes, I agree, women named Fendulas tend not to have happy lives. So it seems just not only that he liked the name Fendulas, but he associated it with certain sort of elvish women of melancholy circumstances, right? Which makes you wonder, is does, does he have something in mind here for the lady of the Galadrim, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Good. <laughs> Nicole thinks it's okay for humans to name their daughters after dead elvish women needs to be a slogan on something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's totally, it's totally fine. Um, all right, let's keep going. I don't know about you, but this introduction threw me for a loop. Sit now, Frodo of the Shire, said Celeborn. We will await the others. Each of the companions he greeted courteously by name as they entered. "'Welcome, Ingold, son of Ingram,' he said. "'Your name is known to me, though never in all your wanderings have you sought my house.'" I don't know about you, but when I read that sentence, I'm like, "'Okay, Caliborn, it might be known to you, but it's not known to me. Who the heck are you talking to?' Right? It took me a couple seconds to be "'Oh, yeah, Aragorn! That's right! That's who he's talking to, right? He's talking to Aragorn.'" Um, uh, and that's that's really hilarious, right? It's you know, the fact that that the moment that he changes the name uh, uh, to Ingold, son of Ingrim, for the first time is in the context of somebody saying your name is known to me, right? And that's I think I don't know I thought that was funny, um, but uh, but he's never been there, he's never been there, um, and yes, Carita, there is no Arwen, Arwen doesn't exist. There's no, there's no glimmer of a hint of Arwen yet. Um, anyway, okay, so he's uh, Ingold, son of Ingrim, um, and he's never been to Lothlorien before, right? So he's, he's, his name is known to the Lord of the Galadrim, but he's never been there. Welcome, Gimli, son of Glowen. It is almost out of mind since we saw one of Durin's folk in, in Kalas Galadon as it now is called. But today our long law is broken. Let it be a sign that though the world is dark, better things shall come, and friendship shall grow again between our peoples. When all the company had come in and were seated before him, the Lord looked at them again. Is this all? he asked. Your number should be nine, for so the secret messages from Rivendell have said. There is one absent whom I miss, and had hoped much to see. Tell me, where is Gandalf the Grey? Okay. So you notice... <laughs> Tom Hillman says, no glimmer of the even star. He 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 saw what I did there. Um, Karita asks why his name is known in the first place to Celeborn. Good question. He's a friend, Ingold, son of Ingrim, or Elfstone, or Aragorn, or whatever he's going to end up being called, is, is a friend of Gandalf, and he has 
traveled far and wide and and so presumably because they've got mutual friends right in Gandalf at least right if nobody else so that seems to be what he's um um that seems to be all that they would know about him that I can think of and that's what he alludes to right um all your wonderings right so he is known as a as a great traveler um and presumably as a mutual friend with Gandalf um one thing you've got to notice, right? The Lord does all the talking, right? Celeborn is the man. Savor the moment. Savor the moment. Celeborn is the man. So, again, big picture. Unfolding of Lothlorien, right? And that story. First, simple Haldir story. It's just the Haldir segment. Escaping the orcs. Finding Gollum. Quick, let's move on to the breaking of the fellowship. Then, no, let's spend some time. Let's 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 explore Elvendom, right? So we get Karen Emroth. We get some Elvishness, right? Then, which is of course a hill, right? Naturally, it's like a big old mound. And then we're going to go to the then then we get the Lord and Lady, and we're going to go to the city, and we're going to see the Elvish Lord and Lady. Um, but it's it's the Lord. It's all about the it's all about the Lord, right? He's the boss. Um. Yeah, this is going to be Celeborn's only moment out of the shadow of his wife, uh, Jennifer. Um, so he says all these things. Some of these lines are going to get given to Galadriel later on. Celeborn gets them all first time around. A Balrog, said Celeborn. This is, of course, not contiguous. A little bit later on. A Balrog, said Celeborn. Not since the Elder Days have I heard that a Balrog was loose upon the world. Some we have thought are perhaps hidden in Mordor, or near the Mountain of Fire, but naught has been seen of them since the great battle and the fall of Thangarodrum. I doubt much if this Balrog has lain hid in the Misty Mountains, and I fear rather that he was sent by Sauron from Orodruin, the Mountain of Fire. None know, said Galadriel, what may lie hid at the roots of the ancient hills. The dwarves had re-entered Moria and were searching again in dark places, and they may have stirred some evil." Okay, hey, so Goadriel does get a speaking point. Um, yeah, you're right, Karita. He is the king king, right? That's it. That's it. Um, we have open doubt cast upon the idea. In fact, Goadriel and Celeborn, especially Celeborn, kind of heap scorn upon the idea that a Balrog could have been under Moria ever since the fall of Thangarodrim, right? Which is, of course, exactly the story that Tolkien is going to decide is really true. But at this point, and Christopher's fairly strong in his opinion, in, you know, in his reading on this, and I'm inclined to agree with him based on what he shows us, that, um, that yeah, the, the, the Balrog, Tolkien does not, probably... Celeborn's suggestion is, is in Tolkien's mind the real story. The Balrog is a newcomer to Moria. He's not Durin's Bane. He's a newcomer to Moria, and he was sent there by Sauron. So this is a, this is a stratagem on Sauron's point. And it's a stratagem against the elves, presumably, like against the elves of Lothlorien. Um, this is, so he's bringing... Remember the references in Appendix A when Gandalf is talking about, when he's doing the Quest of Erebor material, and he's talking about Smaug, and he's saying, you know, imagine what would have, if, if uh, you know, the, the, the dragon would have been a dreadful weapon, right, that uh, he could have brought him up around to, to attack Rivendell. 
basically Sauron is using the Balrog that way, or at least that seems to have been his plan. So he, the Balrog, was presumably going to come down and attack Lothlorien had they not foiled this by meeting up with him and Gandalf taking him down. And notice another, um, notice another, uh, uh, Hobbit parallel, right? Just as Bilbo and Thorin and company get ambushed by the goblins and wargs, right? Find themselves in the very clearing where the goblins and wargs were supposed to meet up that night in order to go down and descend with war upon the woodmen uh, along the edges of Mirkwood and would have killed many of them. But that was thwarted by the fact that the company showed up in the Misty Mountains at just that time and kill the great goblins, and then we've got the eagle fight and everything that happens there uh, with the goblins and the wargs uh, to distract them from their uh, planned attack on the woodmen. The same thing has happened here, right? The Balrog is there, presumably, to whip literally into shape the um, the the orcs of the Misty Mountains, and then he's going to descend with an army of orcs into Lothlorien and destroy it, presumably, right? Um, but that is thwarted by the fact that the company goes through Moria at just that time, and they encounter the Balrog, and Gandalf takes him out, and so uh, the orcs of Moria are not going to come down, with, led by a Balrog, and destroy Lothlorien. Um, yeah, yeah. Yes, John, in the 1937 Quinta, there are still many Balrogs. Um, they're, not, they're not super rare. We have not yet gotten to super rare Balrogs. Yeah. Good. Um, Okay. Let's keep going. So what's Galadriel's job? If she's not the main story, right? If Celeborn in this version, in this draft, really is the boss, right? Really is the primary figure. What does she do? Well, here's her role. Your quest is known to me, said Galadriel, seeing Frodo's look. Though we will not here speak more openly of it. I was at the White Council, and of those there gathered, none did I love more than Gandalf the Grey. Often have we met since and spoken of many things and purposes. The Lord and Lady of Lothlorien are accounted wise beyond the measure of the elves of Middle-earth, and of all who have not passed beyond the seas. For we have dwelt here since the mountains were reared, and the sun was young. Now we will give you counsel. For For not in doing or contriving nor in choosing this course or that is my skill, but in knowledge of what was and is, and in part of what shall be. And I say that your case is not yet without hope, yet but a little yet but a little this way or that, and it will fail miserably. Because of the parallel to the published text, I'm always looking for a verb, yet something but a little, like, but what a little? Anyway, um, but there is yet hope if all the company remains true. She looked at each in turn, but none blenched. Only Sam blushed and hung his head before the lady's glance left him. I felt as if I hadn't got nothing on, he explained afterwards. I didn't like it. She seemed to be looking inside me and asking me whether I would like to fly back to the Shire. Each of them had had a similar experience, and had felt as if he had been presented with a choice between death and something which he desired greatly. Peace, ease, written above, freedom, wealth or lordship. Okay. What is the role of the queen? What is Goadriel's 
Um, what is Galadriel's job in this story here? She is like a temptress. Jennifer, yes. <laughs> Both Karina and Josiah are pouncing on this one. This one point that... Um, <laughs> I didn't think of that. Um, of all those there gathered... None did I love more than Gandalf the Grey. And Karina, uh, Karina and Josiah are a little scandalized that she seems to love Gandalf the Grey more than her own husband, who was also there. Right. Are you guys imagining she's kind of looking out the corner of her eyes at Kelborn, right? And of everybody there, I loved Gandalf the most. Uh, no, I, I don't. I Presumably she's, like, present company implicitly accepted there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, James, I agree. James Stevens points out that it sounds like she only met, uh, Gandalf at the council. I absolutely think that that's what she's saying. That at the White Council, at that gathering of wizards, she and her husband attended, and of them, of these new people that she met, this is like, what, like a branching out for them. Right, they decided to attend the meeting of the White Council, which, as we know, is a gathering of the of the good wizards, um, you know, of now presumably different colors, which may or may not be hierarchical, uh, probably hierarchical now, as we've seen with the white. So, okay, so there's this gathering of wizards, and they show up. These two elves show up. Prob- are they the only elves who show up? Uh, we don't really know, but anyway, so there they are. Um, they show up, and they so it's like a meet and greet, right? They meet a whole bunch of wizards for the first time. Among them is Gandalf, right? And she's like, Gandalf was my favorite wizard, right? Of all the wizards, I liked him best. Um, and often have we met since and spoken of many things and purposes, right? So we've we've uh, we've uh, we've been BFFs ever since that day. Um, What is her role? What is her... Yes, Tony, exactly. Um, we have a very clear precedent for her, right? Um, Melian. She's Melian. She's in the Melian role. Clearly in the Melian role. Um, she doesn't know Melian, necessarily, Right? Um, but she, uh, she's very clearly in the role of Melian. Think about the role that Melian plays. What does she do? She doesn't talk much. She lets Thingol run the meetings, right? So when there's a gathering in the throne room, think about when Baron is brought before the king, right? Thingol's in charge of that meeting. Right, he's the boss. He's the one making pronouncements. She doesn't say anything. Melian doesn't say anything until afterwards. Right when she's like, "Oh, king, you have devised cunning counsel." Right, but you really put your foot in it, you moron. Right, um, she doesn't say that until afterwards in private. She doesn't speak during the meeting. But what does she do? She meets Baron's eyes. Right, and Baron is really uh, stirred. He's really moved, and maybe something in his heart is stirred up when he exchanged glances with her, right? Um, So uh, she... 
Um, is she testing his spirit, Baron's spirit? Ms. Melian testing Baron's spirit in some sense? Um, it seems quite possible. And she knows things, Kate. Yeah, she's very wise, right? Um, and her wisdom, her husband, when he's being smart, avails himself of her wisdom, right? Um, so it's interesting. As in this, so Galadriel, she's not, she's not running the meeting, right? She's not taking charge. Celeborn is clearly the boss. But she's in that Melian role. Um, she has this more kind of passive... Well, she does speak more than Melian does, right? Um, but her job is to be wise. Her job is to to probe and test the hearts um, of those that come before them, right? And it is very much like... Um, um, very much like temptation, right? Um... But, um, yeah, Nancy, I agree. Thingol could have stood to avail himself of her wisdom a good deal more than he did. Agreed. Uh, presumably he did on many other occasions, right? But, um, um, but, but yeah, it's, and and James, I agree. How she tests their heart, it sounds even sketchier in this draft than it ends up doing in the published text, right? Um, offering them what they greatly desire does kind of sound, James, you're right, it does kind of sound like the way that the ring, the one ring tempts people, right? Um, that, uh, that really does seem to be, seem to be the case. Um, okay, let's keep going on. Immediately after. First draft, immediately after this. Now is the time for any to depart or turn back who feels that he has done enough and aided the quest as much as he has the will or power to do. Originally, first time through, what is the point of Lothlorien? The point of Lothlorien is a place where they can shake off the uh, the orcish pursuit, right? And begin the next stage of their journey. Namely, the breaking of the fellowship, right? That's the point of Lothlorien. That's still the point of Lothlorien, right? It's this point of transition. You have come this far as a fellowship, right? Now, um... Now we reach a turning point. The job of the fellowship is like... She's ready to cash it in at this point, right? Legolas may abide here with my folk as long as he desires, or he may return home if chance allows. Even Gimli the dwarf may stay here, though I think he would not long be content in my city, and in what will seem to him a life of idleness. If he wishes to go to his home, we will help him as much as we can, as far as the Gladden Fields and beyond. He might hope thus to find the country of the Bjornings, where Grimbjorn, Bjorn's son the old, is a lord of many sturdy men. As yet no wolf or orc make headway in that land. That I know well, said Gimli. Were it not for the Bjornings, the passage from Dale to Rivendell would not be possible. My father and I had the aid of Grimbjorn on our way west in the autumn. A little side note on Grimbjorn the old here. Um, of course you will recognize that exchange, that talk about the Bjornings and Grimbjorn the Old is eventually going to get kept, but it's going to get relocated right back to many meetings um, uh, in uh, 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 Glowen's conversation with uh, Frodo, right? So, 
um, we're going to get that, but he's going to, he's going to, he's going to shift it here. So why does he digress? Because this is a bit of a digression, right? Into the Bjornings and Grimbjorn and, um, you know, without the Bjornings, the passage from Dale to Rivendell would not be possible. Bit of a digression again, right? From the conversation at hand. Why does he do that? Because clearly, at least I think clearly, this idea is just emerging in Tolkien's mind. He wasn't thinking of the Bjornings, right? He seems not even to have asked himself the question, what happened to Bjorn and Bjorn's people, right? But when this prospect of them splitting up and going back home, so once Galadriel opens her mouth to try to give Gimli an itinerary back to the Lonely Mountain from Lothlorien, the way that he goes up through the Gladden Fields gets Tolkien thinking, oh, wait, Bjornings! Yeah, Bjorn's people will still be there. Uh, that's great. Um, so, so he he keeps going, right? He does out the digression. Eventually, later on, he's going to edit it and he's going to move it. Um, but uh, but for that to emerge again, remember, it's not map first and then story. It's story first, and the map emerges from the story. And here we can literally see the map and the people on the map emerging. Uh, as this character opens her mouth to talk about how to how to go somewhere, um, yeah. And Brian, you're right. The idea here does seem to be that the fellowship is going to break up naturally, not that it's going to be sundered by the betrayal of Boromir, um, but that it's just going to get dissolved. Right? It's the fellowship has run its course, right? Getting Frodo across the mountains and down to this place, this was always its job, right? Now it's time to split up. Legos and Gimli are going to head back. Well, Legos going to hang out, right? And the, But Gimli's going to head back north. Boromir and Aragorn, presumably, excuse me, what's his name, Ingold, now going to head south to Minas Tirith. Um, what are the hobbits going to do? Oh, who knows what the hobbits are going to do? We're going to get there, right? In fact, let's carry on to that. You, Frodo, said Celeborn, I cannot aid or counsel, but if you go on, do not despair, but beware even of your right hand and of your left. There is also a danger that pursues you which I do not see clearly or understand. He's talking about Gollum, right? Again, see how much higher is the status of the Gollum plot uh, at this point, right? Uh, At this stage. Even Celeborn is... Celeborn is aware that some danger unknown to him in the form of Gollum is pursuing them. You others of the little folk, I could wish had never come so far. Stupid Elrond sending a bunch of hobbits along. Does he seem to be second-guessing Elrond here? For now, unless you will dwell here in exile, while outside in the world many years run by, I see not what you can do save go forward. It would be vain to attempt to return home or to Rivendell alone. So you've either got to go on, which bad idea, or you uh, have to stay here. But there's going to be this time discrepancy, right? Years are going to go by while you're in prison here, because you know what happens to mortals when they stay in fairyland, right? Ask Rip Van Winkle what happens to mortals when they stay in fairyland, and that's what's going to happen to you. So, but hey, you guys asked for it. Yeah. Um... Uh, Tony asks when he says to uh, 
beware of his right hand and of his left? Does he mean the other hobbits or his own weakness? I think he means his own weakness, or really, I mean, he's just sort of speaking figuratively to sort of say, this is, you should be as careful as if you suspected even your own hands, right? Um, uh, which is a concept, of course, that's going to stay in there. That kind of warning is going to stay in there, but not here and not from from Celeborn. Okay, so Marion Pippin coming was a mistake after all. Now, we already saw that they're going to have a role, right? They're going to bring Treebeard to the battle. So there's gonna they're gonna they're gonna involve a giant in helping to break the siege, which is cool. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Yana, you're right. Yana says, remember that at this point, the breaking of the fellowship is the entire point of this chapter. Um, uh, it feels forced because Tolkien needs them to separate, but hasn't figured out how to do that properly. Well, I don't know, but because I, I mean, he already had them breaking up due to Boromir's uh, betrayal, right? Boromir tries to take the ring. Frodo, in panic, runs away. When Frodo is lost, remember they they get distracted, right? They run off to Merry and Pippin, lose their minds and run off. Sam finds Frodo's track and pursues him. Um, You know, Legolas and Gimli run off, and there's that brief idea of them getting captured by Saruman. So the breaking up of the Fellowship was originally designed to be the consequence of Boromir's betrayal. So this seems to be a shift, um, just suggesting that it's going to get dissolved, like by Goadriel's authority, I guess. Um, uh, That Goadriel, in her wisdom, perceives that this is Frodo's job. He's supposed to go on alone, or almost alone. Okay. New outline. They dwell 15 days in Karaskaloth, and remember in the earlier draft, it's on the third day that they're going to... So, initially she says immediately, uh, at the time of their first meeting, now is the time for you to depart, right? So they were just going to be... They're just like waving on their way through Lothlorien. They didn't even stay a day in Lothlorien the first time. Then he has them stay for a little while, and they're going to hang out, and they're going to hear the eulogy for Gandalf and stuff. But it's still only three days that they stay in Lothlorien. So now, new outline. They dwell 15 days in Karas Galadon. Elves sing for Gandalf. They watch weaving and make and work sorry, weaving and making of the silver rope of the fiber under Malorn bark. The trimming of arrows. King Galdoran's mirror shown to Frodo. Mirror is of silver filled with fountain water in sun. Seas shire far away. Trees being felled and a tall building being made where the old mill was. Evil biscuits. That's what it is. It's Ted Sandyman's bis. It's a uh, Ted Sandyman's biscuit factory. That's what that is. The insidious biscuit factory. Gaffer Gamgee turned out. Open trouble, almost war between Marish and Buckland on one hand, and the West. Cosimo Sackville Baggins very rich, buying up land. All slash some of this is future. King Galdoran says the mirror shows past, present, and future, and skill needed to decide which. Sees a grey figure like Gandalf going along in twilight, but it seems to be clad in white. Perhaps it is Saruman. 
sees a mountain spouting flame, sees Gollum. They depart. At departure, elves give them travel food. They describe the stone hills and bid them beware of Fangorn Forest upon the, or, upon the Ogodruth, or Entwash. He is an Ent, or great giant. Um, <laughs> Kurita feels almost uh, indignant that the mirror is in Galadriel's from the beginning. Yeah, no, it's the king's. King Galdoran, which is a better name than King Tar, you have to admit. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah, so King Galdoran's got a mirror, right? He's the man, he's the boss, and his wife, she's wise, right? She's real great and everything, but she's not the central story, right? Um, but we are still going to give, uh, we're still going to give, um, Right, exactly, Josiah. Uh, Josiah points out that his name is not King King anymore. King Galderon. Now he's King Tree King. Exactly. Right, right. that's his new name. It's still, it's still better. Um, and Tony, I agree. Treebeard is still just is still just a giant. Yes, um, there is no sense that Ent means anything else yet. Um, I, I don't. He's not a tree. Yeah. Uh, I was pretty convinced of that even from the Gondor outlines, or the Ondor outlines, excuse me. Um, but I think this, this, this shows it even more, even more plainly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, Yeah, Josiah, that's really easy to kind of overlook, right? The significance of the fact that the the trouble in the Shire, right? So his here's here's his two ideas, right? Remember he didn't know last time he was doing the outline. Now he has two suggestions for what's going wrong with the Shire, right? Number one, industrialization. Right? We're replacing the nice mill next to the river with an evil biscuit factory. So that's bad. Um, and the other thing, civil war, right? We're getting the elves of the Mar- sorry, the elves, the hobbits of the Marish and Buckland have declared war upon the hobbits of the West. Um, and I agree, Josiah, that is much worse than an invasion of ruffians from without. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, basically, Kate, yeah, you're right. War between the Tooks and Brandy Bucks. And given that we're still looking for a job for Merry and Pippin, one wonders if that's not exactly what he was thinking of, right? War between the Tooks and Brandy Bucks. Um... Karina, you think that a packet of evil biscuits, uh, evil Shire biscuits, would be uh, would be some pretty good uh, Tolkien merch, right? Well, um, you know, I wonder if the Tolkien estate has bothered to trademark the name Cosimo, right? Because if not, we could actually we could actually market Cosimo's evil biscuits. Right? That could happen. Oh, man. Yeah. 
<laughs> Kate calls the war between the war between the eastern hobbits and the western hobbits the war of the mushrooms. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not the war of the roses. It's the war of the shrooms. That makes all kinds of sense. Yeah, it's perfect. It's perfect. Um, good, good. Okay, so, but back to the mirror. Okay, so the mirror, which is the the mirror of King Tree King, um, it just shows the trouble in the Shire and Gandalf, who might be Saruman, right? Gandalf in white. So we have we have three things really. What's going on back in the Shire, or what will go on back in the Shire, or what has just recently gone on back in the Shire? It is unclear. The uh, anticipation of the return of Gandalf and the enemy, Main, namely Gollum, right? We're not going to see the Eye of Sauron. We're going to see Gollum in the mirror, right? And maybe a glimpse of the mountain spouting flame. But you see, that's not the same thing. The mountain spouting flame, that's a good thing, right? That's the goal. That's, a, that's our destination, right? So, um, uh, you know that's not anything like the same thing as seeing the eye of sauron the only enemy that he clearly sees in the mirror is gollum yeah um yeah stephen says is it the gollum eating fish fresh from the sea uh no, but it's almost like a parody of that, right? Like an anticipatory par- parody, almost. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Uh, are the elves giving them travel food? Um, Limbus, by the way, is not invented now. That is, it's already been invented. The idea that elves have special travel waybread... Um, that is distributed by the queen. That's an old idea. That's that's that that comes out in the Children of Hurin, um, and at just so it's 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 originally the bread that's given to um, to Beleg, right, which he brings to Turin and the outlaws. That's the first time that we get the elvish travel bread, and then Bilbo stuffs his pockets. Uh if you've read the, the if you've read the um the history of the hobbit john ratliff's history of the hobbit um he stuffs his pocket with fairy with fairy cakes right cuz he's in an elf mound so fairy cakes but of course you know what fairy cakes are this is a this is a a british thing right um i would never have gotten this Cupcakes, yes, yes. Cupcakes, what Americans call cupcakes, are called fairy cakes uh, in England. Um, so, so yeah. So this image of Bilbo stuffing, his, so so it, it's a joke. Tolkien's making a, a wordplay, right? In Bilbo's case, they're literally fairy cakes, right? That is, they're cakes baked by fairies, right? And so, and he steals a bunch of them and stuffs his his pockets with them and runs back. But it brings up this, like, inescapable... I mean, there's no question that the children, you know, the English children reading The Hobbit are going to imagine, if that had stayed in the published version, uh, are going to imagine Bilbo 
cramming his pockets full of cupcakes in order so that he can travel. And what he's doing is going back to Bjorn's house to try to fetch Gandalf. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's that's um, at the time, right? So at in at uh, you know in the 1930s, fairy cakes were cupcakes, or cupcakes were called fairy cakes then. Um, and uh, so I, I kind of awesome thinking of Bilbo uh, running off with a pocket full of cupcakes. But again, special elvish travel food. We see that idea still, you know, already still there, already still there, um, uh, creeping up again with Bilbo, right? Uh, in the first draft of that. Again, we, he pitches that because Bilbo doesn't go on that kind of a journey anymore. He was going to set off and go fetch Gandalf. That was going to be his first his first job. Instead of rescuing them, there were no barrels involved um, in that first projection. But then, Bilbo decides just to man up and do it himself. Anyway, okay. So again, travel food, old idea. And we get the poem. I've just excerpted excuse me, from the poem, the three stanzas which are different. The three, the three stanzas which are which are interesting. Apparently, many of the, uh, the stanzas which were kept into the published version were there originally. Here are the three that either got heavily revised or they got cut from the final version. When morning on the hill was bright, across the stream he rode again. Beside our hearth he sat that night, and merry was the firelight then. This is, again, Frodo's song, right? Um, notice the emphasis there. Um, where where Frodo goes in this first draft of the song is a more personal narrative note, right? Rather than just speaking about Gandalf in general. Um, when evening in the Shire was gray, his footsteps on the hill were heard. Before the dawn, he went away on journey long without a word. Um, is the quatrain that stays in the originals. But he's not telling a particular story, right? This is a particular story. Notice, beside our hearth, he sat that night, and Mary was the firelight then. It's a recollection of a particular incident. Whereas in the published version, it's talking about a, the, the kind of thing that he did. Right when evening in the Shire was gray, and this happened on more than one occasion, I can tell you, his footstep on the hill was heard. Right before the dawn, he went away uh, on journey long without a word. That's how Gandalf rolled. Right, it's one of the things that he was known for, and we see him in you know we hear in chapter two of the Fellowship of the Ring that he's done that on many occasions with Frodo. Right. Um. So again, it's talking about Gandalf's general behavior patterns in the published text here. He's recounting a particular anecdote. It's a little more chatty. It's a little more anecdotal, right? Which is an interesting and, I think, an increasingly personal touch. This is the touch of personal reminiscence. The, the When Evening in the Shire Was Gray stanza is, is still personal reminiscence on Frodo's part. But it's less about him, right? It's not, a, it's not him recalling a particular story. A shining sword in deadly hand, a hooded pilgrim on the road, a fire, a mountain fire above the land, a back that bent beneath the load. Okay, this again uh, is going to get revised, right? Um, let me see if I can remember the published text. A deadly sword, a healing hand, a back that bent beneath its load, a trumpet voice, a burning brand, a weary pilgrim on the road. That's the published version. 
Um, notice the difference. A shining sword in deadly hand, a hooded pilgrim on the road. Notice first how Tolkien's going to separate them more, right? Um, a deadly sword, a healing hand, right? So pointing out the contrasts in Gandalf more, right? Emphasizing more the contrast. Notice how uh, here we have the sword in the hand, right? It, sep- it separates the sword and the hand, um, which, of course, are supposed to be working together in order to emphasize the contrasts that are bound up in Gandalf. He is a deadly sword, right? He wields a sword in a deadly fashion, but the hand that wields the deadly sword is also a healing hand, right? So it's a much more complicated collection of opposites and uh, juxtaposition of ideas in the final revised published text. Um, a hooded pilgrim on the road. A f- uh, so those get shifted, right? Again, a deadly sword, a healing hand, a back that bent beneath its load, a trumpet voice, a burning brand, a weary pilgrim on the road. Um, notice the emphasis on weariness. A hooded pilgrim on the road could doesn't suggest weariness. It suggests travel, right? Lots of travel. It suggests a purpose, because a pilgrim is not somebody who just goes around, right? A pilgrim is somebody who has a destination, right? They're on a pilgrimage. They're going to a certain place for a certain reason, and that reason, one, connected with uh, devotion and calling, right? So a hooded pilgrim on the road is just a pilgrim who is mysterious in some way, right? Keeping his identity a secret. Um, The shift, again, in the published text to a weary pilgrim on the road is invoking, is, again, saying the same thing by calling him a pilgrim, right? Saying the same thing, and yet um, emphasizing his weariness, right? He he persisted in his calling and in his journeying, but, you know, it wasn't easy for him, right? Um, A mountain fire above the land. Um, See, there's um, um, in... Again, in the published text, a trumpet voice, a burning brand. Two, again, two separate, isolated uh, images. A mountain fire above the land. That's a fascinating image, especially, of course, as it's hard to disconnect it from Mount Doom, which is the destination of Frodo's pilgrimage, right? Of his particular journey. And he's associating it with Gandalf here, and I'm not sure what to make of the mountain fire above the land, right? That he... In what? In stature, in power, in... I'm not even sure what else, right? Significance um, stands above everybody else, right? Um, Yeah. And, but the emphasis on a back that bent beneath the load. The stanza still ends with, just as the published stanza ends with the weary pilgrim, right? Um, This ends with a back with the bent back, um, so that we get, we do get, we do see already that juxtaposition between his greatness and his burden, uh, and the fact that he was still just a guy who was bearing a burden. Of Moria, of Khazad-dûm, all folk shall ever sadly tell, and now shall name it Gandalf's tomb, where hope into the shadow fell. This open sort of eulogizing at the end. Again, remember, the contrast is to the the, the, the ending um, in the published text. Um, and this is the moment where, in the published text, it shifts into narrative, right? The narrative of his final battle. 
He stood upon the bridge alone, and fire and shadow both defied. His staff was broken on the stone, in Khazad-dûm his wisdom died. Right, that's the, the final stanza in the published text. I love that stanza. Um, he stood upon the bridge alone, and fire and shadow both defied. Um, just two of my favorite lines in all of Tolkien's poetry. But... Um, here instead we get we don't talk about his actions it emphasizes the significance of his death right when gandalf died hope fell into shadow um and therefore his fall is going to rename moria it's not going to be khazad-dum anymore people are going to call it gandalf's tomb instead now of course you know Frodo hasn't run this by the dwarves yet. Um, and it's clearly just sort of a testament to what Frodo feels to be the significance of his death. Um, but uh, but it, it's very interesting that in this version, it's not Gandalf's heroism that Frodo ends with emphasizing. It's something quite like despair. Hope fell into shadow when Gandalf died. Um, it was kind of a big deal. Okay, um, I'm gonna end there. I've got lots more Goadriel material, but that's okay. It's getting late, and I want to let you guys go. We did get to do the poetry. I was hoping to get to the poetry. So we'll finish up with Goadriel next time, and then we'll continue moving on. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna leave it there. Thanks everybody for joining me, and thanks again for being flexible and agreeing to uh, join me at uh, this uh, later hour now, half an hour later than before. I know it's hard, especially Yana, on those of you over there in Europe who are now getting. You know, it's now maybe you can sleep and wake up earlier, right? So it's later is better if you're waking up early, right? Um, anyway. <laughs> So good morning to those of you in in Europe. Good night, everybody else. Thank you very much for joining me, and I will see you next week uh, for uh, uh, more exciting developments as we continue to watch the Lothlorien story grow and then uh, move on past it. Thanks, everybody. Bye now.